two Barclays analysts. One hot topic, all sides explored. This is The Flip Side. The Flip Side is a podcast series featuring lively debate between two Barclays research analysts, taking opposing viewpoints on timely topics of importance to economies and businesses around the globe. Welcome to The Flip Side. My name is Jeff Melle. I'm the head of research at Barclays. I'm joined today by Mark Giannone, our chief U.S. economist. Thanks for joining me, Mark. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Today, we're going to talk about the potential for the U.S. economy to experience a recession this year, driven by the rapid increase in interest rates engineered by the Federal Reserve over the past 16 months. Now, this recession has been long expected by professional forecasters, including by our own U.S. economics team here at Barclays, as stubbornly persistent inflation has forced central banks across developed markets to tighten monetary policy. So far, though, the economy has remained surprisingly resilient, and the timing of this so far hypothetical downturn keeps getting delayed. You're right that the economy has shown considerable resilience so far, supported by solid household consumption growth. But I don't think it's correct that we have seen no signs of the economy slowing. Some parts of the economy have begun to weaken. I continue to believe that the sharp increase in interest rates will lead to a recession. It's just taking longer than expected. Well, I disagree, Mark. I do not believe the economy is going to contract anytime soon. The Fed does not have the same level of control over the economy as we are trained to believe. And there are lots of reasons why this economic cycle is very different from our historical experience. And together, that means that higher rates just won't have the expected effect on activity. Well, Jeff, let's start with our official forecast. We are now expecting a shallow recession to start in the fourth quarter of this year, with GDP registering a cumulative decline of just 0.5% between the fourth quarter and Q1 and Q2 of 2024, and a relatively modest increase in the unemployment employment rate. I expect it to hit 4.2% at the end of this year and peak at 4.7% in the mid-2024. Now, this is both delayed from our original forecast and really quite mild. I mean, for example, in many economic cycles, the lowest the unemployment rate gets is somewhere over 5%, and we're expecting the unemployment rate to peak below that level. Yes, like I said, this would be a shallow recession. And the reason is that the U.S. economy has quite a lot of momentum. To give a sense of the numbers, the most recent data shows that real GDP grew 2% in the first quarter of this year, supported by strong private demand, with consumer spending growing at a robust 4.2% annualized over the quarter. Although private demand and consumer spending appear to have decelerated in the second quarter, the available data indicate that the growth is still pretty strong. For example, real disposable income growth is running over 2% annualized in the three months through May. Well, Mark, these headline stats are not suggestive of an imminent recession. And keep in mind that that latest data that you cited is strong despite concerns that the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and the general turmoil in regional banks across the United States, which, by the way, was the subject of the last flip side, would exert a significant drag on economic activity and the labor market. I mean, this economy has shown it can weather some significant shocks. Yeah, not so fast. When we go a bit deeper, we do see evidence that the rapid rate hikes are having an effect. One example is residential investment, which has been declining at a fairly rapid pace for over a year. This is often the first place we see the effect of higher rates. Recall that mortgage rates rose sharply from around 3% in early 2022 to over 7% in just a few weeks, and they are still that high. As we would expect, key measures of housing activities such as new home sales, resales of existing homes, and single-family housing starts all turned down last year. You know, I'd note, Mark, that a lot of those measures you just discussed have been stabilizing in recent months. 
But even if the sharp increase in mortgage rates reduces some measures of housing demand, it looks like the effect on activity has been muted. I mean, one example, we have not seen layoffs in construction workers that would typically occur during a hiking cycle. That has negated the usual multiplier effects that would occur as the workers who get laid off curtail their spending. Now, the absence of a construction layoff cycle significantly reduces the potency of monetary policy. Yes, I agree. This may be in part because home builders enter this cycle with a record stock of houses still under construction and were understaffed in the face of the surge in housing demand during the pandemic. But that backlog is falling and I expect the job losses will follow. We've also seen business fixed investments low in recent quarters, likely reflecting higher interest rates and a tightening in bank lending conditions. The manufacturing sector more broadly has been in contractionary territory since late last year, at least according to the purchasing managers indices. We expect that substantial cuts in production lie ahead, given the sharp declines in new orders, with aggregate demand continuing to rotate from goods to services and the inventory restocking cycle having run its course. Now, generally, manufacturing would be a natural place to see the effect of higher interest rates. It's a capital-intensive activity by definition. But right now, fiscal policy is providing some significant momentum in the opposite direction. I mean, just two examples. There's the CHIPS Act, which encourages domestic semiconductor manufacturing. And obviously, there's a spate of investment investment and ideally manufacturing that will come on the back of that. And then there are all the climate subsidies built into the Inflation Reduction Act, or IRA, which will encourage a lot of green investment. So I'm not so convinced that these production cuts you're expecting will actually materialize. But beyond the current state, the core reasoning behind our expectation of a recession is that there is no other path to taming inflation. But Mark, inflation's already fallen. I mean, the latest inflation data shows that it's closer to 4%, down from nearly 10% at its peak. Yes, inflation is well off at the peak. And that's a very good news. But keep in mind that the target level of inflation set by the Federal Reserve is 2%, and they are sticking to that target. The reductions from here necessary to reach that target will be much harder to achieve because most of the current price pressures is in services. While core goods price inflation initially surged in 2021 in the face of supply chain disruptions and material shortages, it moderated substantially when the normalization of supply chains occurred. It was running at 2% year over year in May, compared to 12% year-over-year in early 22. Now, this decline in goods inflation was widely expected. Actually, it was the reason why so many people believed that the surge in inflation during COVID would be transitory. Supply chain disruptions and material shortages all eventually ease as markets normalize. It just took too long for this normalization to occur. And now inflation is firmly embedded in the economy. Yes, that's correct. While goods inflation has fallen, core services inflation has increased significantly to 6.6% in May, up from 4.1% in early 22. Some of that is due to housing prices, but even excluding housing, services prices are increasing over 4% annualized. I think services price inflation won't fall unless we enter in a mild recession. Here I see three challenges for the Fed. So first, inflation in core services appears to be more persistent and sluggish than core goods inflation. It simply takes more time for it to revert back to levels consistent with the Fed's target. Yeah, that's because this isn't due to some sort of external shock like a port closure or the shortage of raw materials. Inflation of this type can be a vicious cycle. What happens is workers start demanding raises that line up with their recent inflation experience. And then that in turn raises costs for companies who have no choice but to raise the price of their goods and services. And so you enter this sort of self-fulfilling prophecy. 
Yes, and that ties into the second challenge. Inflation in core services appears more closely linked to the tightness in the labor market and to domestic condition than is the case for core goods, which depend more on intermediate products, including imported products. And third, demand for services is less sensitive to interest rate changes than the demand for durable goods consumption. As a result, sustainably reducing services inflation will require rates to be higher for longer, such that income growth slows, consumption growth slows, and we see an easing of the labor market. Those are just synonyms for recession. Again, we think this will be needed to lower price pressures, especially in services. You know, Mark, this strikes me as less of a forecast given the current path of economic fundamentals than it is a view about what those fundamentals must be in order for the Fed to hit its inflation target. I don't disagree with that. While the Fed will not deliberately try to cause a recession, its determination to reducing inflation will cause it to maintain a relatively tight policy stance, even if the economy weakens. In a way, the weakening of the economy is a feature of the disinflationary policy rather than a bug. The Fed is not going to be convinced that it has vanquished inflation after seeing low prints for a couple of months. Instead, it will need to see a long string of weak inflation prints, maybe up to six months, before it gets confident that inflation is reverting to its target. You know, that's actually a good segue to my perspective, which is that we won't see the slowdown that you predict. Now, your view is premised on a fundamental assumption that the economy will respond to interest rates in the quote-unquote typical fashion, which means higher interest rates equate to less activity. Well, Jeff, that's not really an assumption. We have many years of evidence and lots of theory for why interest rates have an effect on the economy. Yeah, but the recent experience casts some doubt on that premise. Now, let me go back in time for a moment to the pre-COVID era. Remember that in 2019 and 2018, interest rates were near zero and in fact, even being cut for a period there. In fact, this was true across the developed world. Remember that Europe and Japan had negative interest rates at this time, and this low rate policy existed for nearly a decade. Why? Because inflation was well below the typical 2% target. Policymakers were desperate to get inflation higher. At Barclays, we even had a term for this lack of price pressure, misinflation. Yes, that was partly a puzzle, and central bankers were trying all sorts of measures to get inflation higher. Ironic, of course, now that we have the opposite problem. Yeah, now my point is that we had monetary policy across the developed world that should have, using all the historical data and models that you cited, led to higher inflation. We also had record low unemployment rates. Get all of that monetary stimulus and that very low unemployment rate just wasn't working. Now we fast forward through the COVID inflation shock. Like you say, we have the exact opposite problem. Here we are over a year into a record setting pace of interest rate hikes and the economy just isn't slowing. Do we see a pattern here? Well, I'm not so sure. There are lots of potential explanations for why the economy was slow to respond to monetary policy in both instances. For example, the disinflation associated with globalization pre-COVID and the fact that monetary policy was constrained by the zero lower bound on interest rate in the aftermath of the global financial crisis. Right now, consumers are still benefiting from all the fiscal stimulus that was passed during COVID. Even with the tightening over the past year, aggregate household net worth was still over 32 trillion dollars higher in the first quarter of this year than it was in the fourth quarter of 2019 before COVID hit. Now, I'm going to go even further, Mark. I think there is a long list of cyclical and structural reasons why the current economy is just less sensitive to interest rates than was the case in the past. Now, you named a few, and, and the most important of which was all of the fiscal stimulus that was passed during COVID, which is likely to keep supporting spending. Yes, that is true. Spending can remain high and savings rate low for another several quarters before consumers exhaust these excess savings. Here's another cyclical issue that is limiting the effect of higher interest rates. 
there are currently shortages of workers at the low end of the wage spectrum. Now, those workers are usually the first to lose their jobs as rates rise and the economy slows. And then they're the last to get them back once the economy recovers. But currently, companies are hesitant, rightly in my view, to reduce their labor force because they are already short-staffed and they're worried that they won't get those workers back when they need them. Yes, the labor market has been strong, but like housing, it has also been normalizing somewhat. Non-farm payroll employment gains are gradually coming down, although at a very slow pace. They were running at a three-month moving average pace of 283,000 in May, down a bit from the 320,000 average in the preceding three months. Aggregate hours worked fell from February to May, reflecting declines in the average work week. The unemployment rate rose to 3.7% in May, and initial claims for unemployment benefits have edged up a bit in the first half of June. Well, for the record, Mark, 280,000 new jobs a month is still well above steady-state job creation. And while we've heard lots of anecdotes about layoffs at some high-profile companies, notably in the tech industry, those workers, unlike lower-paid services workers, don't stay out of work for long. I don't believe that the historical experience is much of a guide to the path of the labor market that we're experiencing today, which has all sorts of COVID-related idiosyncrasies. Well, I agree in part, and that's why we don't expect the unemployment rate to raise much. But even one percentage point higher unemployment rate means a lot of job losses. All right, here's a structural reason why I think rates are less relevant right now. Our economy has become increasingly services-oriented, and as you mentioned earlier, the services sector is just less sensitive to interest rates. Services don't require a factory and equipment and all of those things that need financing and thus become more expensive when interest rates are higher. I mean, just think about our forecast. You're forecasting a slowdown in manufacturing, and yet the unemployment rate is going to stay below 5%. That would have been impossible in prior cycles. Yeah, there was a boost in goods consumption during the early stages of COVID, when restaurants were closed and households bought a lot of home furniture and electronic equipment, but has reversed with the so-called revenge spending. Consumers are eager to travel, dine out, get entertained, and trend towards services has continued, as services generally require more workers to produce. This has contributed to the tightness of the labor market. Services have most of the labor shortages, with job opening highest in education and health, in professional business services, in leisure and hospitality, and in trade and transportation services. You know, one final point, Mark. So far, financial markets have not been helping the Fed. The market has been repeatedly pricing in rate cuts in the future, even as the Fed is raising its current policy rate. In effect, longer-term interest rates have not moved up nearly as much as the overnight Fed funds rate. Yes, that is true. And most borrowing happens at longer maturities. So the inversion of the yield curve, where the longer-dated yields are below the overnight rate set by the Federal Reserve, means that the hikes are not fully reflected in the actual borrowing. Typically, this is the case when investors expect a recession, such that they think the Fed will have to cut rates in the future. In this case, the Fed's inflation-fighting credibility may actually be making their jobs tougher. You know, equity markets have also been robust. I mean, the S&P 500, as an example, is up over 10% this year. And that further bolsters consumers because they have more wealth and thus can do more spending. And the housing market has some weird twist to it as well. Recall that during COVID, there was a surge of home buying. Home prices rocketed up across the country as households rethought their housing needs during the pandemic. And they have remained pretty high. Yeah, but all that home buying that happened during the pandemic was being financed by record low mortgage rates. Sure, right now mortgage rates are higher, but the fact is many, many households locked in low rates during the COVID era, and they're not selling their homes. They are way in the money on those mortgages. In fact, given how high interest rates are today, those households can earn more 
putting any new savings into even like a money market fund than they're paying on their mortgage interest rate, which in a strange way provides a further boost to consumers. Now, you put these pieces together, it's not clear to me that the Fed has the fine-tuned control over the economy that we're trained to believe. This cycle is just different. And on top of that, the economy is slowly but steadily changing. Maybe monetary policy is not this all-powerful tool after all. Yes, I agree that services activity is not very responsive to the Fed's tightening in policy. Are you saying that there is no level of rates that would cause a recession? No, I'm not saying that. Obviously, very extreme levels of interest rates would cause a slowdown in activity. What I'm saying is that the level of rates necessary to get that last 1% or 2% of inflation out of the system is not a level that the Fed can stomach. They're not going to raise rates to 10% higher just for that sort of gain in inflation. And I think that's true for both political and economic reasons. I think we should get prepared instead for a period of above-target inflation. It's the opposite but analogous experience to the pre-COVID era, where we experienced persistent below-target inflation. And recall, at that time, it stayed low in part because the Fed wouldn't take extreme steps then, like negative interest rates that other central banks tried, that might have gotten inflation up to the target. Well, Jeff, I disagree. I think the Fed knows very well what happened in the late 1970s when they let elevated inflation get embedded into higher inflation expectations. So far, they have been lucky that inflation expectations have remained fairly well anchored. But the longer inflation remains elevated, the greater the risk that inflation expectations become unanchored and move up. The Fed is terrified about this possibility, and they are in a race with inflation expectations. I'm confident they will implement a policy that is sufficiently restrictive to bring inflation back down to 2% over the next two or three years. And so this is why we think that they will raise rates again twice by 25 basis points this year and keep rates elevated for longer than most people expect. Well, we're certainly going to be watching this closely. Thanks for joining me, Mark. Clients of Barclays can read our latest take on the forces at work in the U.S. economy in our most recent global outlook entitled U.S. Exceptionalism, which is available on Barclays Live. That's all for now from this Barclays podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time on the flip side. For more insights on this topic, clients can log into Barclays Live or find out more at barclays.com CIB.